Jeremiah chapter 40. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah. Why don't you open your Bibles or navigate on your tablet or your phone to Jeremiah chapter 40. If you're really ambitious, you can find our transcripts online and follow along as we teach. We'll look at verses one through 12 this morning. Not quite the whole chapter. The last couple of verses uh, start a new story that is continued in chapter 41, so we'll see those next week, Lord willing. The topic we're gonna find this morning, in the aftermath of Jerusalem's fall, Jeremiah is given a choice to live in either Babylon or in Judah. The title of our message, Choosy Prophets Choose Judah. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that after we're done listening to your spirit speak to our hearts this morning, we'd have an overwhelming sense of wanting to uh, know your will, remain in your will, or return to your will. That we would submit ourselves to your plan for our lives, knowing, Lord, that as a good and gracious heavenly father, though the going is not always easy, uh, you're going with us. Uh, to help us to endure and to grow and to know you more day in and day out to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we will awake in your likeness one day uh, when we're resurrected from the dead or at the time of the rapture of the church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Do you always do God's will? Well, no, you don't. I don't. Others don't. If we did, we wouldn't need to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most of us believe God has what we would call a perfect will for our lives, but that he gives us freedom to choose whether or not to find and follow it. Some call this second tier God's permissive will. I'm guilty of oversimplifying the matter. Uh, the, The subject of God's will is a vast theological landscape. But while the scholars are arguing about it, you and I have practical decisions to make every day. We need to find and follow God's will. While our text cannot make choices for you, it can offer you two very important perspectives on choosing when it comes to God's perfect will for your life. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you should choose to remain in God's will Or number two, you should choose to return to God's will. Let's take a look first of all in verses one through six at remaining in God's will. Jerusalem had fallen to Babylon after a 30-month siege. Chapters 40 through 44 focus on Jeremiah and on those Jews who survived the devastation and who remained in Judah and the nearby countries. The Babylonians appointed Jedaliah, a Jew, as governor. He encouraged the Israeli troops out in the fields to lay down their arms and live at peace with Babylon. And he invited Jews who had fled or been driven from Judah and were living nearby, uh, in nearby countries to return. Jedaliah's governorship was good, but it won't last long. The king of Ammon will plot with a Jewish soldier named Ishmael to assassinate him. As I mentioned, the last few verses of chapter 40 start to get into that part of the story. We'll get into all the details next time we're together studying Jeremiah. Today we'll see Jeremiah and then the Jewish rebels and refugees have an important decision to make. And so verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, 
When he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. Now, if you're thoughtful, you'll remember that in chapter 39, we read that Jeremiah had been set free. And so how is it now that he is bound in chains in Ramah? Well, probably in the aftermath of the siege, the Babylonian soldiers mistakenly took Jeremiah prisoner along with the other captives and brought him to Ramah, which was a small town just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Apparently, it was a staging area where they were determining what to do with Jewish prisoners. Another possibility is that Jeremiah was set free in Jerusalem, but decided to accompany the captives to give them encouragement on their way to Babylon, not realizing who he was and that he'd been freed, the soldiers would have rearrested him. In either scenario, in either case, Nebuchadnezzar recognized him in Ramah and he ordered his release. And so Jeremiah is free. Verse two, and the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done it just as he said, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. Nebuchadnezzar was certainly not a believer, but that didn't stop him from seeing prophecy being fulfilled. Whether they realize it or not, non-believers are seeing prophecy being fulfilled before their very eyes. Israel is a nation again, and in their land, creating problems for the nations of the world all in fulfillment of prophecies, some as old as 2,500 years. Uh, Exactly what God said would happen with Israel has happened and is happening. Every week, we suggest many other fulfillments or trends in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Even without recent prophetic fulfillment, we can show that of the nearly 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, give or take a few, at least 2,000 of them have come true exactly the way the Bible said they would in stunning detail. And so 2,000 of the 2,500 Bible prophecies have already come true. If you wanna get even more specific, Jesus Christ in his life, uh, his birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension into heaven fulfilled over 300 prophecies just in that brief period of time. The odds of one man fulfilling even 20 or 30 of those prophecies are astronomical and near incalculable. And so non-believers are seeing Bible prophecy being fulfilled exactly as God said it would. You see this bleed over now into educational television, something that uh, is a, a very recent phenomena in my way of thinking, at least the last five or 10 years. Years ago, you would never hear anything uh, remotely positive or normative about Christianity on uh, public television or educational television. We were a bunch of crackpots who believed that one day people would be able to have their palms scanned uh, to pay for their lunch at school. Now that's all you get on educational television is story after story about Armageddon, about uh, you know, technology and the mark of the beast, about the Bible and different things. They're not believers still. It's not Christian programming. But they're using the Bible. They're talking about the heroes of the Bible as if they were real people. Uh, they are noticing that Bible prophecy 
seems to be coming true right before their very eyes, even though they remain unbelievers. And that leads me to say that if someone doesn't believe in Jesus, maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not ready to embrace Jesus Christ as your savior, you're not quite there, it's not because of a lack of solid evidence. 2,000 of God's 2,500 prophecies have come true. I think there's a pretty good chance that the remaining 500 are going to come true. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. You can't even read the new, even the Hanford Sentinel is filled with fulfilled prophecy. (laughs) Even though they're not really reporting news, even they are (laughs) occasionally report something that is prophetic. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, it's not for lack of evidence, it's that you just refuse to get saved. There's something about your sin and the darkness in which you live that you prefer more than the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's because you don't want to get saved. There's plenty of evidence. Verse four, now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. All the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. Jeremiah was free to choose. He could accompany those being deported to Babylon where he apparently would be treated well and be protected by a high-ranking official, Nebuchadnezzar. Or he could remain in Judah. His choices weren't unlimited, they never are, but they were genuine choices. Then verse five says, now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuchadnezzar said, go back to Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah. Dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. It almost sounds as though Jeremiah were hesitating between the two choices. Maybe he was. We don't really know what was going on in his heart. But it does emphasize for us that he was being given a real choice. He could do whatever he wanted within those parameters. He could go to Babylon. He could remain in Judah. Maybe even go wherever he wanted to. Verse six says, then Jeremiah went to Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, to Mizpah, dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. Jeremiah chose to remain in the land. Was this a good choice? Was it the right choice? Or as we would put it today, had he chosen the perfect will of God for his life? In this case, we would say without hesitation or reservation, yes, Staying in the land was definitely God's perfect will for Jeremiah. It was always God's will for a Jew to dwell in the promised land. You never had to wonder if that's where you ought to be if you were a Jew in Old Testament times. So much of what God had promised to the Jews involved living in that land. Their lives and their destinies were rooted in the promised land. From the exodus forward, they were to enter the land, possess the land, and find their national identity and blessing serving God in the land. They were only being dispossessed from the land temporarily and then by God himself on account of their sin. 
God had promised he would return them to the land after the discipline was over, after the Babylonian captivity. And he had also made statements about them permanently dwelling in the land in the far future times beyond which, uh, even beyond our own day. And we see that happening today. Israel back in their land permanently, never to be dispossessed again. Jews were supposed to live in Judah. If you were carried off captive, forced away from Judah, fine. There was nothing you could do about that. Daniel and Ezekiel had been thus forced away to live in Babylon as captives. But if you had the choice, and Jeremiah did, God's perfect will was to choose to remain in the land. Why would Jeremiah even hesitate? Well, I don't know his mind and heart, but for one thing, life in Babylon would be a lot more comfortable and a lot safer than life in Judah. He could settle there in Babylon into a kind of retirement. He was old. Persecution had uh, obviously taken its toll on him physically. There wouldn't be any real work to do in Babylon. He could hang out with Ezekiel and Daniel. What a trip. He, he might even be senior to that. He could be the senior prophet. Give those guys prophet lessons in kind of a semi-retirement. Hang out with his buddy, Nebuzaradan. Maybe they could go hawk hunting together or whatever you did in Babylon. They could watch Nebuchadnezzar while he was acting like a beast in the forest. I mean, it, it was kind of a, it, it was a real opportunity for him to hang up his prophetic hat, as it were, and enjoy, in a sad way, the fruit of his labor. There wouldn't be any real work to do compared to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I mean, if he stayed in Judah, there was gonna be a lot of work to do encouraging people and getting your hands dirty, as it were, putting together a society. And as we'll see, life in Judah was gonna be really dicey with different warring factions and all. And so I don't, I don't, uh, I can see the reason why anyone would hesitate. But in the end, he chose not just to remain in the land, but obviously to remain in God's will for his life. Our choices always seem more complicated when in fact, most of the time, they are quite simple. They seem more complicated because we're not tied to a land like the Jews were. And so we think, oh, you know, where should I live? Nobody thinks... I can't ever leave Hanford because this is the promised land that God has put me in. This is absolutely where God, in fact, everybody thinks I can't wait to leave Hanford. <laughs> but the idea is that you, we're not like the Jews. You can't unequivocally say I have to be in this land. This is God's will for me. And so we assume that finding God's perfect will is way more difficult than it's ever been in the history of the world. How do we know what to do when in reality, God has revealed in his word a great deal of what we would call his perfect will for our lives. Often use marriage as an example in our studies because it's something we can all relate to. We know God's perfect will for marriage. If you are a believer, his perfect will is that you marry another believer. God's will for marriage is that it be a monogamous relationship between one man and one woman to last their lifetime on the earth. 
There are a few grounds for divorce, but even then divorce isn't commanded, it's only permitted. And so the average Christian has access to God's perfect will for marriage. God has gifted marriage with sexual pleasure, but any sex outside of marriage, he says, is sin. We're told plainly in 1 Thessalonians, the will of God is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And so in this huge area of our life, marriage, family, the household, uh, we know God's perfect will. In every major area of our lives, God has established what his will is, whether it's the home, the church, or our employment, we can read up on God's perfect will for us as believers, and we can choose God's way, and we can choose God's way because we have God's grace to empower us, to enable us to do what he is telling us to do. Okay, but what about the more particular choices? I know that's what you're worried about. I mean, we see God's will for marriage, but how do I know who I should marry or what church to attend or what job to take? Well, I would say that we don't just have guidelines and the grace to follow them. We actually have a guide that accompanies us in and throughout our life. Jesus promised he would send God the Holy Spirit to indwell us. He would be and is our comforter, our counselor, our guide, applying the word of God to the specific situations of our lives. And so with the broad brush of the general guidelines of the perfect will of God, I think that you can get more specific. If I'm in God's perfect will, thinking about marriage and family and all of those kinds of things, and then I see, well, you know, how do I make the more specific choice? Uh, God is speaking to you, speaking to me, revealing things to you, revealing things to me. I have a relationship with God by which he goes before me and orders my steps and helps me make those kinds of decisions. It's not so much that I don't know the will of God or can't find it as that I don't like it. That's what is the real problem. And this is what Christians need to realize. God's will is not hard to find. And even in the particulars, there's a, I, I almost call it, there's a romance about it where God wants to interface with you. He wants to dialogue with you. He wants you to discover his will in an almost romantic way, in a, in a, in a mystical way, as it were. Uh, but it's not hard. It just requires you to, to really want to go God's way. And so a lot of times, you know, quite, quite the opposite today, a lot of Christians come in and they say, it wasn't God's will that I got married to this person. I was outside of the will of God. And they believe that that is an, uh, like a free pass. I wasn't in God's will then, so I don't have to be in it now. I need to go back to before I got out of God's will and start all over again. Hey, it don't work that way. Are you married now? Yeah. There are biblical grounds for divorce? No. Hey, this is God's will for you. It can't be. I don't like it. All right, well, we're making progress. It's not that we don't know God's will. It's that we don't like God's will. Uh, And so it's not rocket science. It really isn't. God wants to, uh, you know, reveal his will to you, and he has for the most part. And we're to remain in his will, but we need to choose to remain in it. 
There are gonna be choices along the way. There's always going to be a Babylon that seems safer and more comfortable. There's always gonna be a Babylon to choose. The world is gonna come along and offer you choices that are contrary to the perfect will of God. They're gonna be easy choices, comfortable choices, choices where you feel like you'd be better off. We need to reject them and submit to God's will, trusting that God in his love knows what is ultimately best for us spiritually, remembering that we only live a few years on the earth. 60, 70, 80, 90 years, it's nothing compared to eternity, God is preparing us for eternity. And we may have to suffer light affliction for a moment in order to have the greater weight of glory later. Now, verses seven through 12, you should choose to return to God's will. When you and I get out of God's will, we didn't remain in it, just return to it. It wasn't hard for the Jewish rebels and refugees to know God's will for them in the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem. God had revealed through Jeremiah for decades his will was for them to surrender to Babylon and submit to his discipline for their sin. With the fall of Jerusalem as proof Jeremiah's words were true, it was time to return to God's will by surrendering to and submitting to the Babylonians. Israeli soldiers were still out in the fields when Jerusalem fell. Jedaliah's first order of business was to get them to lay down their arms and to serve Babylon. Verse seven, and when all the captains of the armies who were still in the fields, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Jedaliah the son of Ahiakim governor in the land and had committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon. Then they came to Jedaliah at Mizpah, and, uh, and I'm just gonna skate over some of these names. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Kerea, uh, Sariah, the son of this guy, the sons of Ephi, the, my favorite guy, the, the Netophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of Amakathite, they and their men. And Jedaliah, son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us, but you, gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. For a soldier to have to surrender to the enemy, that must be hard. But they really weren't surrendering to an enemy. They were surrendering to God. Jeremiah had told them, because of your idolatry and sin, God is going to raise up Babylon as a punishment, as a discipline. And so surrender to God. You wouldn't surrender prior, and so this is how you're going to have to surrender. If they had been surrendered to God all along, they would never have been besieged. Babylon would have never come into the picture. So they were surrendering to God. In your marriage, you aren't submitting to your spouse, you're submitting to the Lord by submitting to your spouse. And guys, submission is mutual. I know normally when we talk about marriage, we tell the ladies they're, you know, to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. But earlier in that passage in Ephesians 5, it talks about believers being in mutual submission to one another. And quite honestly, the harder portion of that is treating your wife the way Jesus Christ loves the church. You try that for five minutes. What did Jesus Christ do for the church? Everything. 
including lay down his life by dying on the cross. So think about that. Next time you can't wait to tell your wife, you need to submit to me. <laughs> yeah, that, it doesn't, it, yeah, bad attitude. You need a time out. But, uh, but the idea is that th- this is where we struggle. At home, in the church, out at work. Ah, this, this situation is so rough, you know. Yeah, well, look beyond your spouse. Look beyond your boss. Look beyond the person that you're having conflict with because our conflict isn't, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle in a spiritual dimension and we need to do these things as unto the Lord. So if I come to you, if you say, yeah, I just can't submit to that person because of this situation or that, then if I say, well, could you submit to Jesus Christ if he were asking you this? Oh yeah, absolutely, he's the Lord. Yeah, that's what's happening, don't you understand? He's asking you to submit to him by putting this situation in your life. And and so that's what we need to remember. We'll do well when we remember our lives are always lived as unto the Lord. Now, not just the rebels, but quite a lot of Jews had fled Judah and were living in nearby countries as refugees. Verse 11, likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites in Edom and who were uh, in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set them over, or set over them, excuse me, Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah, to Jedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. Now, whether or not they should have fled or they were driven away to these countries, they certainly should now return to Judah. Return is a great word. When you find yourself fighting God and fleeing God, All you need to do is stop and return to submitting to his will for your life right now. I left God's will for my life maybe yesterday, maybe an, an hour ago, maybe 10 years ago. What should I do? I should return to his will right now. Now, in some cases, you've made a mess of your life and the lives of others. And so there may be consequences. You might not be able ever to return to things the way they once were. Some of you know that. I mean, we all know that, to be honest. We've all made mistakes, created situations, and and there's been devastation at some level. And though there's forgiveness and, and, you know, uh, restoration and all of that, sometimes you've just made a mess of things and you can't go back to the way things once were. And as I mentioned earlier, Sometimes it's wrong to go back to the way things were because the situation you're in now is the one that God wants to work through. But you can always return to the will of God for my life right now. Now I should tell you though that Jeremiah is gonna have a rough time in Judah. Johanan is gonna succeed Jedaliah after Jedaliah is assassinated. Refusing to listen to Jeremiah's counsel, Johanan flees to Egypt and he takes with him Jeremiah and Baruch, Jeremiah's faithful scribe and servant. There the aged prophet seems to have spent the remainder of his life. There's no authentic record of the death of Jeremiah. One tradition is that he was stoned to death by Jews in Egypt, but nothing is certain except that it wasn't a life of ease. I add this as a postscript to say that surrendering to God's perfect will doesn't mean smooth sailing. This is something I think that we 
believe almost innately that once I surrender to God and I am in his perfect will, he'll leave me alone. I don't need a whole lot more work going on in my life. My trials will subsist, you know. I will have learned my lesson and it'll all be smooth sailing. I'll have all the money I need to pay my bills. Nobody will be mad at me. Those kinds of things. Uh, And that's uh, just not true. Jeremiah was supposed to be in the land, but then almost the next thing that happens is he's carried away forcibly to live in Egypt. So you and I look at that and say, wouldn't he have been better off in Babylon? How can you say it was God's perfect will when he ends up getting forcibly taken to Egypt because that was God's perfect will? Because he was a Jew and he should live in Judah. And if later on he gets carried off to Babylon, that is within the greater will of God for his life. And though it's a hard pill to swallow, as we like to say, that was his lot in life. God's will can be hard to accept, but it's not that hard to know. It's mostly already been revealed. Remain in it, or if you don't, return to it. Your life may not get any easier. In fact, it might get harder, but your living life will be filled with the wonder of God's grace, enabling you to endure to the end. The Christian life, I guess I I would say it's a real life where God says, you've signed on to become like my son, Jesus Christ. That's what you really want to be like. In In your finest shining spiritual moment, in your prayer closet, when you're reading the word, you and I as Christians, we want to be like Jesus because his is the greatest life ever lived on this planet. There is no greater life than the life of Jesus Christ, the God-man who set aside his deity, though fully God, and allowed himself to be filled with the Holy Spirit and only did what God the Father told him to do every day of his life for 33 and a half years. It is the greatest life ever lived and we want to be like that. And God says, good news, because I want to make you like that. That's what it's all about. After you become a Christian, you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and you will awake in the likeness of Jesus Christ. But guess what? Along the way, I have to use metaphors like crucible and fiery furnace and affliction because those are the methods that I'm going to have to use to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So stay in my will, stay in my will when it feels like a crucible. Stay in my will when it is an affliction, but you know that that's where you're supposed to be because that's where I'm gonna get rid of some impurities and man, do you have a lot of them. I mean, you know, I can only squeeze you so much because of the stuff that's coming out of your life right now. It's, you know, and, but minute by minute and day by day and year by year, you're gonna become more like my son, Jesus Christ. One final thought. If you're not a Christian, you've never really received Christ as your savior, never asked him to forgive you your sins, you haven't been born again. It is God's will that you be saved because he says through the apostle Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, does everybody get saved in the end? Sadly, no. But I know 
without doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that it is God's will, if you're not a Christian, that you get saved. And I know that the Holy Spirit is here ministering to your heart, drawing you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you too have a place in your heart that knows that you won't be a a real person, a full person, until you're like Christ, until you're in Christ. And so today as we close, there's gonna be men up here at the front who would love to pray with you and lead you in a prayer of receiving Christ. If you're in the fellowship hall, come on over. If you're here in the sanctuary, come on up after we close in prayer and, um, and let these guys minister to you. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray.